So I read a startling statistic this last week that suggested that of those in the community that are not part of a church, 82% would attend a worship service if invited. So now as we move into the Lenten season, which begins next week, I'm hoping that it can also be a season of invitation. Maybe there's a friend or a family member that you might consider inviting to join you over this Lenten season and experiencing the goodness of God that we just sang about a moment ago. To help you with that, we've created these little invite cards. They are out in the lobby as you leave. Take as many as you'd like. I hope that you'll take advantage of, of the opportunity of Easter to invite someone to come and know, know the goodness and the grace of God. So today we are going to head to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We'll be specifically looking at verses 1 through 5. I wonder if you've ever had someone put words in your mouth, suggesting you said something that you actually didn't say. When my daughter Hannah was about three years old, she loved candy, as most children and most adults do, love candy. But we did not want to give our child too much sugar, so she always had to ask permission before she could have candy. Now, she couldn't pronounce the word candy, so she referred to it as Yangies. And she knew that in order to get Yangies, she had to get mama's permission. However, every once in a while, she would manipulate her aunt. And she would walk up to her and say, Mama says yes, Yangies. Even if mama actually didn't say yes. Oh, we love to put words in people's mouth. Sometimes, I think we even put words into Jesus' mouth, claiming that he said things he actually never said. And how often have you heard, you know, Jesus says, God helps those who help himself, which Jesus never said and is actually not in the Bible at all. So today, we once again turn to the actual words of Jesus, uh, this time in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. But before we get there, I want to go one chapter back to chapter 17. In this chapter, Jesus is with his disciples in Galilee. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him, and on the third day he'll be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Tragic news. Their leader, their Messiah, their rabbi is going to be killed. But then just a few short verses later, though the disciples have just heard this news, they approach Jesus, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, They come to Jesus and they asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? Oh, it's a question we've wrestled with, debated and sought for thousands of years. As children, we argue about the greatest. I mean, have you ever heard a little kid say, maybe you said when you were a little kid, well, well, my dad can beat up your dad, because he's the greatest. We, we argue in sports over who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. 
Jim Kelly, of course. We, we argue over leadership. Who's the greatest leader? Who's the greatest politician? Who's the greatest parents? We are obsessed with greatness. So were the disciples. This isn't the first time that the disciples argue over who is the greatest. A couple chapters later in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is with his disciples, and the mother of two of his disciples, James and John, she approaches Jesus. What is it you want, he asked her. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. In other words, give my two sons the position of power. Which I always laugh at this story, because James and John don't have the courage to ask themselves. They like send their mama in to do the heavy lifting, which I'm always like, if I were Jesus, I'm like, you had your mama ask. That's automatically a disqualifier, right? It's like taking your mom to a job interview. Luke chapter 22, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, the Last Supper. He takes a piece of bread, a cup of wine. This is my body. This is my blood that's going to be shed for you. He's betrayed by Judas. And at the dinner table, we read, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Oh, we're obsessed with greatness. Now, it wouldn't have been uncommon in Jesus' day. Jews were obsessed with hierarchy. And in our day, we capitulate to the world's standards of greatness measured by power, wealth, achievement, status, and influence. You may recall when Apple first released the Apple Watch, there was a version of that watch that you could buy that was made of 18 karat gold. It cost between ten dollars and $18,000, depending on the version that you purchased. Which begs the question, who would buy an $18,000 watch made from technology that would be obsolete in just a couple of years? Well, the person obsessed with status, with achievement, with influence. But the disciples, they come and they ask Jesus a very specific question. Not just who's great, but who is the greatest in your kingdom? Specifically in the kingdom of God, who's the greatest? When Jesus preached, that was his central message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is at hand. Jesus central message in all of his parables, in all of his stories, in all of his teaching was the kingdom of God. What does that even mean, the kingdom of God? Well, simply, the, the kingdom of God is where God's will and God's way happens. It's so much more than a place. The kingdom of God is a reality that's already, but also not quite yet. The Gospel of Luke chapter 17, a Pharisee comes to Jesus, and he asks him, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. 
You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. For the kingdom of God is already among you. When God's will and God's way happens, that is the kingdom. We have gathered together in his name, desiring his will and desiring his way. The kingdom of God is amongst us right now. When Jesus was asked by his disciples, Jesus, how should we pray? Jesus offered this prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When God's will happens on earth, it meets heaven. The kingdom of God is already, it's right now, but it's also not quite yet. There is an eternal aspect to God's kingdom described in the book of Revelation. A time when heaven and earth will come together and all things will be made new. This kingdom, this kingdom that's already, that's not quite yet, that's present but also eternal, is one that does not fit neatly into our boxes that we create. The kingdom of God does not fit neatly into our economics, our politics, or our culture. And the moment we try to squeeze it in, we do injustice to what the kingdom of God is actually about. See, the the reality of God's kingdom is constructed differently, and it breaks into the most unlikely of places. There's another story in Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Again, Jesus is with his disciples, and they are, at this time, they're in Jericho. Jesus is passing through, and we read that there was a man there named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. Now, keep in mind, tax collectors were the most hated people in all Jewish society. I mean, think of the the worst, most despicable form of human being you can think of. That would have been the tax collector. The tax collectors were hated by everyone because they were cheaters and oppressors. So Zacchaeus, he wants to see Jesus, but he can't because he was short and he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. When they argued and they talked about it and they posted it on Facebook and Snapchat blew up and X was filled with debates about Jesus being in the home of this despicable person. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Today, the kingdom of God is broken in. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The kingdom of God emerges in the margins, in the places we would rather not go. The kingdom of God disrupts all kinds of social relationships, 
in Jesus' day, Roman society was structured in such a way that there were only two classes, the rich and the poor. There were no middle class. And the rich and the poor, they did not mingle. The rich only associated with the rich because to associate with the poor would diminish their status in society. Below the poor was another group of people, people that were looked down upon the most, and that was that was children. Children were considered property. Children, children were insignificant. Children, children, <laughs> children, children. Jesus calls the little child to him, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. And he put the child among them. Oh, and in ancient society, the elderly were revered and children were looked down upon. But in our society, it seems like we've reversed it. The elderly are looked down upon and children are revered. If you don't believe me, just go to any kid's sporting event. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. When my wife and I had our our first child, it was, many of you know the story, just a lot of pain, loss, and suffering. But when we finally had our first child, it was such a, a miracle in our life that the church that we served threw us a huge baby shower. Oh, they gave us all kinds of gifts, all kinds of things. So many gifts, in fact, that we had to borrow a friend's pickup truck to get them all back to our house. And there were all kinds of things, things I I never even knew existed, things that we certainly couldn't live without, one of which was this this item called a baby wipe warmer. (laughs) And the, the, the baby wipe warmer was this thing that when you go to change the diaper and you you wipe your child, you take the wipe, first put it in the warmer so it's warm, and then you wipe your child with a, and we just threw that in the garbage because I'm not doing that. I mean, it seems like a waste waste of time, and we, we do so many things for our kids, so many things that seemingly are unnecessary, leading to an unhealthy view of reverence. But Jesus, Jesus does something unorthodox. He takes a child and brings the child into the context of his teaching. I mean, there was just a random kid. I mean, probably just a street kid. He just pulls him in and brings him in to the context of the dis- teaching of his disciples, and he radically reorientates what greatness actually means. Matthew chapter 18, verse beginning in verse 3. He calls his child and he says, Truly I tell you that unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Turn from your sins and become like children. That word turn would be the Jewish idea of repentance. Turn from your obsession with power and control and being right and winning. Repent and become like like children. Now, of course, I think Jesus would delineate between childlike and childish because we all know childish adults. That's certainly not what Jesus is talking about. 
But there are characteristics of being childlike that Jesus does not fully explain, but I think we can easily deduce because we know what children are like, beginning with their dependence. Children are utterly dependent on their caregiver. Children are vulnerable. Children are weak and need a caregiver to help them grow and thrive. Oh, they're so dependent on their parents. Even when children get a bit older and they should be less dependent on their parents, they're still dependent. I got a, I got a text this week from my daughter. I love my kids. They are just growing into fabulous young human beings. But my daughter sends a, a text and there's two lines. The first line says, hi. That's all it says. And the very next line is just the picture of a bill she needs me to pay. And that was it. Oh, they're still dependents. Jesus himself models this by coming as a child himself, one that is completely dependent. And because children are dependent, they live life with with hands wide open. One of the one of the greatest moments of my, my parenting life was when my my kids were little and they would go like this. They would go, they want me to pick them up. They would just go, Daddy, pick me up. Oh, I loved it. Scoop them up. They're dependent. Children live lives with hands wide open, but then we become adults, we become so close fisted and so guarded. Children are dependent. Children also all trust. Kids are so trusting, aren't they? There is something about childlike trust. I have a memory from when I was in first grade, and it's such a vivid memory. I grew up in, in western New York, and my community had a lot of Irish people in it, and so we, St. Patrick's Day was a big deal. In our school, we always celebrated it, and I remember on St. Patrick's Day in first grade, we were sitting at our desks. All of us were working. Our teacher had a desk at the front of the classroom, and all of a sudden, our teacher let out a gasp. We looked up, and she had in her bag a brown paper lunch bag, in her hand a brown paper lunch bag that was moving. You could see it moving. And she said, you guys aren't going to believe this. I caught a leprechaun crawling up the side of my desk. Like, what? Incredible. She said, everyone, come, come gather around. So we all gathered around her desk, our first leprechaun. And she goes to open the bag. She goes, oh, and she pulls out a note. The leprechaun had escaped and left a note. I couldn't believe it. So that, that afternoon when I got home from school, I spent the rest of the day in my front yard looking for clovers, hoping to find a leprechaun. Because if my teacher could catch one, certainly I could too. Oh, so trusting as a child. But then it seems that childlike trust turns to cynicism. I mean, do we actually trust God? We often use the word faith to describe the relationship we have with him. I have faith in God. We often take that to mean I believe in something. But the biblical word faith, it doesn't mean belief. It actually means trust in. When I say I have faith in God, I don't just believe he exists, but I have trust in him. A trust that can transcend my worries, my fears, 
Oh, there are so many things to get worked up about in our world. Now, as we enter into yet another election season, oh, people are worked up. We got to fight. You got to. To which I said, don't we? Don't we actually trust? And I trust God more than anything else. Yeah, of course, there are things in our society that that push against what we believe. But I trust in something greater. Because of that, I can say to all of you, regardless of what it is, it's going to be okay. I've read the end. It's going to be okay. Yep, there are things in our world that, mm, I, I don't know, push hard against what I believe. There may even come a time in our society in which Christians are in some ways persecuted for what they believe. And yet when you read history, the greatest moments of church growth happen under persecution. It's going to be okay. There's a word that's used in the Bible over 400, 500 times. We often translate it as the word peace, but it's the biblical word shalom. Over and over and over we hear this word. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians writes that we should let the shalom of God rule in our heart. The peace of God. The word shalom, it means, it means wholeness. It means completeness. It's got a variety of meanings. When I truly trust, like a child, there is a peace. A peace that transcends it, it all. And so I'm not really interested in fighting against culture. What I'm interested in is fighting for shalom. I'd rather fight for something than fight against something. Because when I fight for God's peace, when I fight for shalom, everything else in the end, it's okay. Children are dependent. They trust in children. Kids have this uncanny capacity for joy and wonder. When was the last time you really experienced joy? I have another memory. My son Ryan was was little. We were at the mall with my wife Rebecca, and and she was shopping, and we were waiting for her. And that that's usually a pretty long wait. And so we we were sitting in the chairs in the hall, and all of a sudden, Ryan just decided he was going to be an airplane, and he just spread out his arms, and he's just going. I mean, there's people everywhere. He's just weaving in and out of people, going just like this, just and he's making a noise, and he doesn't care who's watching him. He's just. Filled with joy and just childlike wonder. And man, do I want to live that way. There was an aliveness in that moment that somehow gets lost in adulthood. I mean, we we claim that we believe in good news. Not just okay news. Not just life-enhancing news. We believe in life-changing good news. When Jesus was born, the angel's announcement was, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Yet religion has become so stern and rigid. Forgetting that Jesus himself said, I've come to give you life and life to the full. Oh yeah, there's some, there's some mystery to all this. 
There's some things we can't fully explain. The ancient church fathers talked about the great unknowing, that there are just parts of God that we cannot explain this side of heaven. So what's the measure of greatness? Jesus said the measure of greatness? Become like a child. A child who is dependent. A child filled with trust. A child that lives with joy and wonder of each day. This morning, oh God, I want to live with open hands. Like children. Oh, I I know there are there are things in this world that are challenging. I get there are things in this world that push hard against what I believe to be right and good and true and moral. But in the end, I know it's going to be okay because I trust you. I'm dependent on you. And so I ask you to fill me with joy. Unless we become like little children. So would you help us, oh God, maybe to get over ourselves? Help us to trust you, to lean into you, to depend on you. And as we do so, give us joy at the good news that we say we proclaim and profess. Amen. So God's greatest blessing on you this week. And as you go, may you experience the childlike dependence, trust, and joy as you live in God's kingdom. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.